0: Welcome to 10x Growth Strategies Podcast. This is your host, Preeti Padmanaban, technology executive, investor, and board member. Today, we will feature the book, The Goal, by Eliyahu M. Goldrat. Our guest today is Andy McMillan, who is the CEO of User Testing. He is a technology executive focused on leading high-growth organization. Welcome, Andy, to 10x Growth Strategies Podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Pretty. It's fun to be here.
0: Great. Tell us about yourself, the key highlights from your career journey. We'd love to hear about you.
1: Sure. Uh, so, I'm currently the CEO at User Testing. Uh, and what User Testing does is help uh, companies get feedback on all kinds of experiences, but often digital experiences where you want to see what it's like to be a user um, actually going through the product and, and sort of how they navigate through things and understand what you're building. Uh, it's a really important space for me because my background was actually coming up through the product development part of the world. Uh, very early in my career, I was actually a job developer, uh, helping General Motors build the first versions of their websites like Chevrolet.com and things like that. I uh, ended up finding my way into product management uh, and came up through the product management ranks at Oracle uh, and then at Salesforce. And I was ultimately the COO of the product group at Salesforce before deciding that being the CEO of a tech company sounded like. A fun thing to go do. Uh, And I came to user testing after spending a couple years at Acton in the marketing automation space. So that's a little bit about my background.
0: That's wonderful. Wow. I am currently in the CRM marketing automation because I I work at Freshworks. Uh, So great to hear uh, that you had like a varied background in engineering product and now running a whole company. Uh, That's a really fulfilling career uh, that you have here. Let's talk about the book. I ended up reading the goal for my B school MBA when I was pursuing that in UCLA, and I loved it. Why did you choose to read the book?
1: So I read the book for the first time um, late in high school. uh, When you grow up in the Detroit area, you know, it's a very automotive centered part of the world. And I actually was part of a class that Ford had sponsored. It was called the Ford Academy of Manufacturing Sciences. And it was uh, really about getting folks later in high school. The idea was to get you excited in, in engineering-focused jobs. Is it related to the automotive industry? And as part of that class, we read the goal, which is really you know about theory of constraints. It forms some of the foundations around things like lean manufacturing. Um, and as you might remember from the book, it, the whole thing is... Uh, either in an interesting way or in a strange way told as a novel. So it's a fictional story uh, that is actually about a guy who's a plant manager. And so uh, obviously that thematically resonates if you're from the Midwest, I think in particular with uh, a lot of the plant manufacturing kind of jobs that exist. Uh, And so that's why I first read the book. And I just found it to be uh, a really interesting read in terms of problem solving, um, how to think about getting people aligned around the right things, And how often, you know, small things that are the right things, when you add them all up can sort of be the wrong things. And I've always found that to be a really interesting uh, mindset to bring into problem solving. And I think at the age I was at, I think it was probably 17, uh, reading the book, I was working as an intern at a brake manufacturing plant uh, that summer. Uh, I think it just sort of resonated with me as an interesting and different way to sort of think about business and business problems.
0: Wow. I really love that. I've never heard somebody talk about putting a few right things could actually lead to the wrong thing. I'd love to dig more on that, but I, that's a very unique insight you have there. Would you, would you care to elaborate on that?
1: I think a big thesis in the book, and I, and I definitely find this to be true. You can, in your organization, end up doing a lot of sort of micro optimizations. Um, so you have one team working on solving one part of a problem a bit better, but actually, you have a much larger constraint upstream. And so if you make that thing a whole lot better, it maybe doesn't really matter because there's a bigger problem further upstream uh, that's really restricting the business in some way. And so if I think of that uh, maybe in terms of a software company versus the manufacturing examples in the book, um, you know, maybe you're doing a whole bunch of work to optimize uh, you know what you're doing on on win rate on a small subset of deals against uh, a specific competitor. But when you sort of back up and look at the the whole business, you know maybe the business isn't generating enough pipeline. It's not going into bigger market opportunities. Um, and instead, you know you're really worried about this one competitor you're seeing in a small number of deals that, even if you want all of those, doesn't really change the the trajectory of the business. So you could have a bunch of people being successful working on that one problem that in the grand scheme of things is you know really not going to move the needle for the business. And a lot of resources can be pointed at the wrong thing. And, and the book really goes through that um, in a manufacturing example, where you think through the idea that the, the metrics in the plant originally set up that every machine is really being measured on efficiency, um, but your plant is really only as efficient as the least efficient machine. Uh, and so through the book, uh, you learn about how to reorient the thinking of the plant that really everything is in service of optimizing the constraint uh, to try to eliminate the constraints wherever possible. Um, and it really changes in the book the way the the the, you know people in the book the characters in the book think about traditional manufacturing metrics like inventory and things like that where, um, you know, it's it's not an asset to have a bunch of inventory sitting around waiting for the machine that's the constraint. And so um, I think those principles can be applied in lots of places um, around an organization. And if you can get a team thinking about constraints, um, you can do a much better job, I think, especially cross-functionally thinking about where do we need to spend our energy? What are the things that if we can improve those things, really improve the state of the business, which makes things a lot easier for everyone?
0: That's great, uh, and I think what I'm hearing is that you know you're looking at it on one side from a micro level, but can you also take it up at a macro level and see the big picture too, and also also not operating in silos, right? Which tends to be a big problem in every company that I've been part of.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's very true, and it's very natural, right? You get fixated on the problem that's right in front of you. Um, you get fixated on. Uh, how to, in, in some ways, take the resources of the company to fix the problem that's right in front of you. Uh, and sometimes you're pulling resources away from things that are bigger problems than the thing that you're staring at. And so, an ability to sort of communicate across the company, across teams, um, not just what your goals are, which is sort of where the book gets its name, like what is the ultimate goal. And the, the, you know, again, the reason it's called the goal is not that these individual metrics are the goal. The goal is for the plant to be able to make money right? That that's the goal. Um, And that all the metrics should sort of of be in service of that. And what you find is that a lot of the metrics uh, at a micro level are really not focused on the ultimate goal of the plant being profitable and and making money. In fact, uh, for the plant to be profitable, you find throughout the story, a lot of the metrics actually have to go in the other direction. They actually have to start um, reducing the focus on those metrics in order for the plant to be profitable. And I think you see that regularly when teams get too siloed, that Um, You can really spend a lot of time and effort uh, trying to solve a problem that in some ways is even taking, you know, the company, the department, the product, whatever it might be, not, not only not helping it go fast, but it can sometimes really take it in the wrong direction.
0: Yeah, I I do remember that. And the goal is to make the plant profitable. And if not, the plant was going to get killed. And it happens in real life, where unless you are able to bring it back, then you don't exist for too long. You know, you started sharing the key takeaways in terms of the theory of constraints. Would love to hear any other top takeaways that you got from the book.
1: Yeah, I, I think um, one of the things that happens in the book, maybe two things I'll speak to, which are sort of interpersonal dynamics that I find to be really interesting. And, and part of how I like it, I know it's a little hokey, but the way the, the story is sort of told as a novel, I think is the idea of enabling you to put yourself in the position of the protagonist in, in the book. And he really has two sets of relationships, uh, actually a third, which is, which is his wife, but I, I won't get into that one. Uh, he, he does actually have to get his team aligned. And one of the challenges in getting his team aligned um, is the is the second relationship, which is all the other plant managers. Everybody's being compared on a set of metrics that are these like deep operational metrics that again, many of them, when he optimizes for those metrics, make his plant less profitable. So he ends up in this sort of, I think, a very relatable sort of upper middle management problem of in order to be successfully graded on their metrics, he gets very focused on those metrics. But ultimately if the plant isn't successful, it's going to get closed. And he ends up in this position of, um, do I take my metrics in the wrong direction where my boss is going to get really mad at me to hopefully in the end, if I have a profitable plant, I can save the plant. And I think a lot of people relate to that where whether you're, you know, building a technology product, whether you're in marketing, you sort of end up in this place where you're like, okay, you know, maybe if you're in marketing, I'm trying to, you know, I need to build this brand maybe to have better conversion throughout the whole funnel. But my my boss just wants to measure me on top of funnel performance, and so if I don't pour all my money into just finding leads, uh, I you know I'm not going to survive. But if I just I, but I know inherently that if I just go find a bunch of leads and nothing converts through the funnel, and the sales team doesn't have leads that are good leads to go chase, I'm, you know I'm not going to keep my job. And you can sort of end up in this position of like, you know, I understand the macro goal, but I'm also being measured on these small things, and they can also sometimes be in conflict. So one, I really enjoy the way the protagonist has to sort of navigate that. Um, and then he has to rally his team to the idea that they've all been conditioned that, that these metrics that they're supposed to be running at um, are what they're being graded on. It's, it's what they think their bonuses are tied to. It's how they think that when the boss, you know, the big boss shows up at the plant, um, you know, how they're going to be be measured um, and sort of bringing the team along to this idea of Of It's not their individual jobs. It's not their individual metrics that corporate is measuring. It's really can they together make the plant profitable. And again, and part of that path is knowing that they're going to have to, you know, sort of ruin some of their metrics that they're being measured on, uh, I I think really creates a a dynamic that I think most people that have been in a a management job of of almost any kind can probably relate to where you're sort of like, you know, I, I really understand what I'm trying to do but you know my boss really wants to measure these other things and and, and so how do i how do i balance that
0: yeah, no, I, I completely relate to that. I I still remember there was in a past company when my boss needed something in a certain direction, but the sales needed something. else. I run, I was running marketing for the healthcare area, and I said, oh, you know what? I'm going to keep those separate. I'm going to get delivery on the sales goals and make sure they meet what they want, and then and then finally once the results are achieved and have them share it with with the management, and that way it's a win-win, right? Uh, I I can completely relate to that. That. Great, great inputs there. I want to take a step back and talk about some of the concepts that were really uh, interesting in the book. One is about the whole concept of intuition, the importance of verbalizing our intuition. And unless we do that, we end up doing op- opposite of what we actually believe in, right? I'd love to hear any examples of when you did and did not verbalize your intuition or follow your intuition. And how did it impact the result?
1: One of the vehicles the book uses uh, that I find interesting uh, is there's this idea of somebody, uh, his name's Jonah in the book, who sort of has all the answers, but he's kind of never available. Like he can never quite reach the guy all the time. And so you get these little moments of nuggets to sort of nudge the team along, but then they have to go figure it out themselves. And I think there's uh, a lot of value in, in how teams learn to do that. But part of the way they do that is they start Verbalizing what they know to be true, they start learning what doesn't make sense or does make sense together as they sort of figure this out. Um, and what it does is really solidify the team's understanding of how to solve the ultimate goal. Versus again, sort of, you, you, we all go through this. You get trained in sort of optimizing the small thing that you're working on, and you just start to believe that that is a truism that whatever it is that you're doing is is just it must be fact. Um, and so I think if we start to look at our businesses more broadly to understand the real constraints from whether it's being profitable, whether it's growing, whether it's you know mitigating risk, whatever the things are that you're trying to do in your business, the way to get your team to understand how to connect what they're doing to that ultimate goal is people have to start verbalizing what they're doing, how it connects to that goal, but also what they're doing that might create a different constraint downstream or that could be changed to solve the main that you've identified. Um, and so, again, I think the book does an interesting job um, using this almost like a Sherpa type character who's sort of like guiding them along at certain moments. Um, but what's neat about that is it's not like they all go to a lecture, take a bunch of notes and then come back and just do those things. The, the team has to sort of work through the problem together um, and they work through the problem by continually challenging their assumptions about what it is that they're doing and how it's in service of this theory of constraints uh, and what they can be doing to to solve those constraints and what it does is it builds a strong team throughout the process but it also builds alignment around the problem and so we do this in uh, in the companies i run one is i use the v2 mom model that, that salesforce uses for goal alignment one of the things I like about V2Mom is that you state your goals and your objectives and your obstacles sort of in writing, but you sort of do it in your own narrative voice. I always tell folks when you write a V2Mom, my my model is that it should sound like you. When I read your V2Mom, it should sound like you. I should almost hear your voice. It's, it's, it's sort of that that narrative um, that helps verbalize what you believe to be true. Um, and so when we start aligning our goals that way, we start sort of being able to build that intuition between our teams of what is everybody trying to do? How do we connect up those goals? And then we run a quarterly offsite with our senior leaders where we get together and we work through those things that we see uh, either emerging as new obstacles, new constraints, or things that we're solving. And I and we do it in a, a somewhat unstructured way. It's a, it's a large form. I tend to have 30 or 40 leaders in the room. And we're talking through, you know, the V2 mom and the things that we're seeing. But I think a big part of the exercise uh, to, to your question is just people verbalizing their intuition, what they see to be true, what they see changing, and and how do people sort of align around those things and, and identify new constraints and then rally towards solving them.
0: Fantastic. And is the V2 mom done across the company and not just at the leadership level?
1: That's right. Every, uh, every employee builds a V2 mom. I start, I try to build mine first and, and I actually build it in a Google Doc and then I share it with the whole company for comments. So, um, everybody, I always tell folks, you know, there's no secret plan, like it's all written down. This is what we're going to go do. And then my senior leadership team tends to do theirs next. And then everybody else does theirs. And I think it's a great vehicle for people to have uh, almost a mix of, of, you know, professional goals, but also some personal goals. Like, what are the things they're trying to get done this year? And how do they sort of help hold themselves accountable that they go do it?
0: That sounds like great alignment across the org. I want to double down on some of the theory of constraints principles, especially for the benefit of our audience. I'll quickly summarize the essence of theory of constraints approach uh, as to what I understood was how to identify the system's constraints. You focus and even exploit the constraint and follow through to elevate Uh, the so-called constraint till it's eliminated, right? And that was the summary uh, of that whole concept. I'd love to understand from you on what are some few critical constraints you've faced as a leader in your organization now or before, and how did you overcome them?
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that is really interesting about the software space versus the manufacturing space is it, it has very... Different constraints, and in some ways, um, you know, part of the power of a software business is is some of the constraints that exist in a physical business just don't exist. I mean, your your you know, marginal cost, for example, of, of building another unit doesn't really exist when you're just you know another person accessing the website. You have a small tech ops cost of, of running your infrastructure. In some ways, I've always thought that it would be interesting to have almost like a, I've joked with people like at some point I'm going to write like a fan fiction sequel where the daughter in the book is now grown up and she's running a SaaS company. She's applying the principles because I think they're a little bit different in a software business. You should have some things that scale exponentially, you know, that are are high scale roles. I think of things like a product management job, you know, you can make a decision as a product manager uh, to change the product and work with your engineering team. And you can roll that out to all your customers and you can have a huge scaled impact on that. There are other roles, uh, maybe if you're an enterprise selling motion, where you know, you you kind of have a roughly a productivity per salesperson, and if you want to double the productivity, you likely are doubling the the sales team, and so you you sort of have a little bit more of a of a standard scaling motion in there. And so, I think for for a SaaS company, sitting down and really understanding sales and marketing, the constraints on the marketing funnel, how much money do you put into the funnel? What comes out of it in terms of leads? I think it's a great place to apply theory of constraints. A little bit to the example I mentioned earlier, the throughput of the funnel is really important. If you're just pouring more and more money into the top of it, like a lot of marketing teams will find themselves trying to do and under incredible pressure to do, you can really change the value of your marketing if you can apply the theory of constraints to your marketing funnel and realize eliminating a constraint as much as possible or, or optimizing against that constraint can really change what is ultimately the goal of a marketing team, I think, which is closed one business, right? It's it's very few marketing teams last very long if they're celebrating a giant set of leads they've created, none of which turn into customers. But every CMO has been in that position before feeling like the main thing they're being measured on is the pile of leads they create. So again, I think this is a good example of like what is the ultimate goal and how do you make sure that's what you're doing? And again, every marketer will tell you, I all the time feel this issue of if I try to improve the quality of the leads at the expense of the number of leads, everybody gets really upset. So I've learned just, you know, lots of leads and it's like, okay, but we all agree the goal is closed business. So I think that's a good example. I think with sales teams, you know, thinking through how you're driving. Is it the productivity of your reps? What is that constraint? Is it winning against a competitor? Is it the ability to identify and grow budgets? Uh, what are the constraints for your sales team being successful? So, um, you know, we work through those. I think in product development, um, you know, it, it is really focused on how do you make often uh, your engineering team more productive? So again, you know, is that, uh, is it better performing sprints? What is it that you're doing? to optimize against that. And so I, in each one of those areas, um, I use theory of constraints more as a problem solving mechanism when I sit down with a group of my leaders or one of my teams. To me it's really just about being able to dig in deep enough to understand what is it that's really stopping you from uh you know doing this 3 or 5x Better, faster, cheaper, and again, the hard thing there is, it's it's usually not about incrementalism. It's usually not, you know, how do we be three percent better? It's how do we be three x better? And and if you can't identify one constraint, and this I think what's really important about the theory of constraints, if you can't identify one constraint that's the biggest constraint, then you haven't gotten yet to the theory of constraints. If you make a list of five things and they're all constraints, the theory of constraints says one of those is the biggest constraint. Right? How do you dig deeper and figure that out? And then put most of your resources on resolving that constraint first into your question, then another constraint emerges, right? That's when you've solved the constraint. Something else becomes the constraint and then you point your resources at that.
0: That's great. I love the example across engineering, product, marketing. I think that was very valuable uh, and looking at it from a SaaS company perspective. So uh, just just curious, so do you have your leaders and people in the organization actually read the book, internalize it and, and experiment with it?
1: You know, I, I think one of the weirdest parts about being a CEO is if you mandate things, it's amazing how often people are sort of like, ah, oh, I'm kind of begrudgingly doing this. But if you simply say a few times, oh yeah, the best book I've ever read, or the book I really enjoy is this book, the number of people you run into over the next quarter or two tell you like, oh, I went and read that book. Um, and so I talk a lot about the you know the goal. I mention it whenever I'm asked, you know, favorite business book. We're doing a big merge right now, bringing together user testing and user zoom. Um, and I've talked a lot about the theory of constraints during that combination. Um, and I'm always clear to tell people, you know, I, it's from this book and and this thought leader, and this is kind of why I think it's important. And so I definitely think it's part of our culture and, and something that people would would know. But I've, I've never said, you know, by next Friday, everybody will have, have read this book. I'm a little bit more of a, you know, put the idea out there and let people grab it for themselves.
0: That's great. I, I agree. <laughs> I think that's the challenge, uh, how to make sure that it becomes from within the motivation.
1: Yeah, I think, it's a, um, I think it's a product management skill set or or behavior. One of the weird things about being a product manager is I always say you're responsible for everything, but in charge of nothing. You sort of have to run around and, and get people to want to do all the things that you think are really important, to build the things, to market the things, to sell the things that you're doing. And so I have found that's really powerful as a CEO, if you can sort of get people to want to do the things that they go, oh, I understand why we're doing it. It was well communicated to me. I bought it and I believe in it. I'm going to go do it versus I heard someone was told higher up in the food chain to go do this thing and now I'm being told to go do it. it is not a particularly motivating way to operate. So um, but I think that's that's a skill you learn as a product manager for sure.
0: Absolutely. I'd love to understand, you know, what are some challenges you faced when you practice the, the theory of constraints from the book and if you have any examples.
1: I, I think the biggest one is is it and again you sort of get this through the book, it involves risk and it involves risk of breaking assumptions and it involves risks of of saying some of the things that are important are just not the most important and that's really hard for people it, it creates culture risk it creates execution risk you know I again I used the example a little bit earlier but I think it's one that, that makes sense to a lot of folks you know shifting to a focus in marketing around closed one business which is the goal when you are building a marketing funnel is really hard for a lot of marketing teams. number one you often don't control the sales team you have to you have to agree that the goal is you and the sales team working together and so then you start to think about you know your product marketing function for example and are we really arming them with the the right collateral to sell against the message that we're building the pipeline against which you again, get is great alignment but often not something a CMO wants to necessarily say is there a problem to get involved in and solve Um, it involves real risk when you say we're going to generate, you know, I'm making numbers up 20% fewer leads this quarter, but we think they're going to close 40% higher. And so the end result is more closed one business, but, you know, ask any CMO, would you like to go have a meeting with your head of sales and explain you're going to generate 20% fewer leads this quarter. That's not an easy meeting to have. And so there are lots of places where, understanding the key constraint in the system will be contrary to someone on your team's most important metric, how someone views their success. And so I think that's part of what takes, I think, an obvious concept and makes it really hard to implement and does really, you talked about building intuition and and verbalizing it. I think that's what's so important is you really have to have a team that can talk about what the ultimate constraint is, what the ultimate goal is, get aligned around that, hold hands and make that leap together, which again is sort of what happens in the book. I mean, they they go they go very red on their metrics before they come out the other side as the most profitable plant in the company. And then everybody wants to know what are they doing over there that's working. And and the answer was sort of breaking all the metrics that they were being measured on to get focused on the actual the goal. Any company can go through that process. It's just challenging. And and you'll find as a leader, a lot of people aren't aligned with you because what you're realizing is that their problem isn't the biggest problem.
0: I remember at the beginning of the podcast recording, you talked about even creating a group that grows and finds all the constraints. Are you thinking of like a central unit or does every group have its own set of people doing that?
1: I think typically you have to be pretty close to the business. What I have found sometimes is is really good sort of strategy and ops leaders are sometimes really helpful in helping identify what metrics really move the company towards the goal and which metrics really don't. And so I think partnering with, you know, ops and BI people can be really useful. They also can be advocates when you're trying to then rally the the leaders that own those metrics to show the correlation, right? I mean, again, part of the book is the team being able to get into the numbers and really intellectually understanding and agreeing that like some of these things move us in the right direction, but some of these things really don't. In the in a, in a book, sometimes they'll optimize the throughput of one machine. Well, now that one machine is consuming raw materials and building up inventory, but they can't get it through the plant. So they're spending more money on raw materials and they're spending a bunch of money on inventory that is actually, I mean, if you're trying to make money, spending a bunch of money on stuff that doesn't turn into product is not helpful but the measurements for those machines go up because they're building stuff. So I think the same is true in our businesses. And so I think that's the area where, um, you know, the trick is really getting down into the weeds with, like I said, those ops folks and having them help connect the dots and saying, look, you know, when we, you know, if we just generate twice as many leads, that all of our SDRs then have to call, and all we do is qualify out. Our cost in marketing is going way up. It's not just the cost of the leads; it's the cost of all the effort we're spending working these things that that we're not being successful. And if you can have your sales leader sitting there saying, "You know what? I I I agree." Watching you know two thirds of our pipeline get qualified out before it ever comes to me as the sales leader, I agree that's not helpful. It's like okay, well now we can go back and say, okay, well. What if we just didn't generate so much of the lead flow that we're not going to use? And now you've got that buy-in from that sales leader of like, okay, I, I now agree. I'm not worried about the top of funnel metric. I'm actually worried about maybe, you know, what is my sales qualified lead volume? And and now we've got alignment, like that's actually the constraint. So, okay, now let's go work together on how we solve that. But along the way, you're going to need people who can show that connection into the metrics to get the buy-in. You can't just come into a meeting and say, I think this is what it is. Let's divert all of our resources to this thing that uh, Andy or somebody else thinks might be the constraint. And so, I think that's where ops teams, whether they're in each team or if they're operating centrally, or if you've got kind of a you know a COO or a, you know head of rev ops or head of product ops, I think those people can be really valuable in helping really understand which which metrics move us in the right direction, and then how do we get alignment and and focus our resources around. Around
0: those. Great. That's a good segue to my next question on metrics. Uh, in the book, uh, the author talks about the three metrics that he uses to track success are throughput, inventory, and operating expense. What are some key metrics you use to track success for your entire organization?
1: Yeah, I, I think some of the well- Warren SAS metrics are actually pretty good at this. You know, I think retention and renewal rates are critically important. And so again, can you then say what things are actually driving those metrics? Which activities are the constraints? Why does somebody not renew? What constraint are we removing? We definitely measure our sales and marketing efficiency. But again, the goal there is not just to have efficiency, it's to have efficiency to closed one business. Um, it's interesting how often. Shifting the conversation in sales and marketing to what is our closed one business ratio of our sales and marketing investment. So CAC can be a pretty good measure of that, so long as you can get your team to realize that there's a lot of expense in that CAC ratio, which is delayed decision, deals you're not winning. Those are really expensive things you're spending time on. And I think people can really just get focused on how many marketing dollars are we spending and how many salespeople do we have versus you know the throughput of that operation is certainly the case. And then I think in engineering. You know, I think a lot about rework. I think about, um, you know, I, I think Agile is great that you can move quickly but I still think it's really expensive to build something and ship it only to go, oops, like that was wrong. Let's go rebuild some other stuff. And so, you know, I think the idea that you can measure and monitor how much rework is happening and remove that can really drive up engineering productivity. I think that's a much better measure that we see things like lines of code written and that kind of stuff. And I, I I don't know, I, I do agree. Some really good engineers write far fewer lines of code, the question is, do we then have to go do the rework? And if the rework isn't that the engineering work was done wrong, but that you didn't build the right thing, then again, the constraint is, are we designing the right stuff? Do we understand our customers well enough? And then you could focus resources there to say, well, when I hand a design to the engineering team, you know, I've tested it. I know it's going to be right. So that's a constraint I've resolved. And then I have good throughput on engineering.
0: Wow, really good inputs on measuring and metrics for SaaS. We've talked a lot about the book. I'd love to also ask a couple of questions about you and your principles. Let's start with what are your top three leadership principles? How have they helped you effectively run your organization?
1: I think one, we talked about a little bit with sort of my product management model, maybe personality wise, I tend to joke with people. I almost never do what I'm told, but I almost always do what I'm asked. And so I have a little bit of a leadership style that I think is around not building consensus. I mean, we're we're not like a Senate committee, but I think the idea that if I'm thinking through a problem out loud, I'm working through it. I think the constraints are people can see that it's logical. People can buy into what we're doing. Then you've got alignment and you've got energy to go do it. So that's sort of one Um, Another one that I think fits in with that is, I think there's a whole thesis around sort of servant leadership that exists in the world. I sort of flip that around and I think about participant leadership. Um, I like to be in meetings early when teams are working through problems, but I like to do it as a participant, not as the CEO showing up to tell everybody what to go do. And I feel like if I can do that in a bunch of meetings and have my voice in there helping solve the problem, we don't get to the end of the process where somebody comes up and shows me a final project plan and says, please approve this. And I have to say... I don't agree with that or that doesn't make sense or we have this other project going on. So I do try to really operate my schedule where I'm getting involved and and sort of acting as a participant as sort of an equal footing team member while we're working through things. Um, and then I think the last one is really just around alignment. And I think that's not about med- cascading metrics. I think this is where sort of KPIs can can go wrong. Or I really believe in what I like about V2Mom, which is just communicating what you're planning to do and what's important to you and identifying the obstacles in a way that people can see, can drive conversations about alignment. And I think that's more important than our metric was 10, you take five, I take five, and somehow we'll end up at 10. I- I'd rather see people really talking through how we're gonna solve problems.
0: All right, so what is some advice Advice you have for business leaders to survive during this economic uncertainty.
1: Well, I um, you know, not to come back too much to our theme here, but I do think getting clear on your goals is maybe one of the obvious answers. Um, I think there's a lot of companies where the goal in the high growth 2020, 2021 window might be different than the goal right now. And so I think sitting down and being honest with yourself about what the goal for the next couple of years? What are you trying to do? Are you trying to continue to grow at the same pace? Are you trying to be more efficient? Maybe you're just trying to survive. What is the goal? And then again, go to what are the constraints to that goal? There are a lot of pre-public tech companies right now where I think the goal might be survival if they're honest with themselves. What are the constraints to that goal? Is, is it cash burn? Is it customer success? Is it partnerships? Like what are the constraints? And then realize that everything you do has to be in service of getting to that goal. You have to take your previous projects, your previous priorities, set them aside and really focus on the goal that you have now. And I think just being clear about that is, is important. And I so I, that's number one. I think number two is think of what your team can be doing that helps the goal, but also keeps them energized. So I'll give you an example here at user testing. You know, we're going through this this merge with user Zoom. It's really exciting for our customers. I think it's exciting for our space. There's a ton to do. And so, one of the things we're spending time talking to our team about right now is don't get overwhelmed by that. Let's make sure we're out talking to customers. It's energizing. You know, stay focused on the things we like doing. If you're in product, stay focused on shipping product and building stuff that people love. That's why people come into these jobs. It's not that they want to be spending a bunch of time on internal stuff related to the merger, which is important. And we want them to be aware of what they're doing. But, you know, make sure people can can go drive energy and, and be focused on the things that matter. So I think those things in a in a tough market, in a tough economy are important as a leader.
0: Great insights there. Andy, it's been a fantastic experience having you on the podcast. Any final insights for the audience?
1: Well, I I, um, I appreciate being on the podcast. It's been really fun to talk about it. I read this book every probably every few years, and it's, so it's been fun just to get to chat through kind of why I think it's important. I think for um, for anyone, part of what I like about it is this book fits the way my brain kind of works and how I think about working through problems, and so. Um, I think it's a great read. I'd also tell folks as you become a leader, part of what you do is think through sort of what works with your style, what works with how you solve problems, what works with how how you communicate. And for me, you know, it's been this book, but I think it's important that people think about leadership as a a personal journey. I've worked for some great leaders in my career who are very different from each other. So not every leader is a carbon copy of a different uh, leader. Uh, And so I think sort of finding what works for you and finding what makes your team successful Um, is important. And uh, maybe for some folks, the, the goal is part of that.
0: Great summary there, Andy. Thank you again for taking time to be on the podcast. Listeners, check out the book, The Goal, and thank you for tuning in.